Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Lori Sunberg to our show. Dr. Sunberg is the president of Kirkwood Community College in Cedar Rapid, Iowa. Hi, Lori. I'm excited to have you on our show today. Hi, Dave. I'm excited to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. So can you tell me about Kirkwood Community College and why students select your institution? Yeah, I think I can. Um, they select us for a variety of reasons. Um, some students choose us because they want to do the first two years of a baccalaureate degree. Um, then they want to transfer on to one of our universities. Um, others just want to complete a degree or certificate and go directly into a career or the world of work. Um, but just having those two really doesn't describe all that we do. So we also do, they're called kit camps. They're college for kids, for the little kids. Uh, we also offer concurrent enrollment uh, for high school students, whereby they get um, high school credit as well as college credit. Um, we offer high school completion uh, for those students and residents who have not completed their high school degree. And then we have English as a second language, and we also serve our business community with customized training, as well as like leisure classes. So folks who maybe want to do um, ballroom dancing, or they want to do yoga, or they want to do some of those enrichment classes, we offer those as well. And so Really, we offer something for everyone from little kids all the way up to seniors. Uh, we, we provide something. Do you, do you have any unique programs there that uh, some community colleges don't have? Uh, we do. So we have um, a lot of allied health programs. So uh, dental hygiene, um, dental assistant, um, respiratory therapist, um, some of those more allied health ones that are not as um, readily available other places. We also have vet tech and vet mm. assistant, which are pretty unique as well. And the reason why I say that is because they typically have outside accreditors besides the college as a creditor. And so they tend to have more oversight and a lot of, um, of course, you know, uh, equipment and technology needs because those fields are ever changing. Okay. Well, what's new at Kirkwood Community College? That's an open, well, that's a loaded question. Isn't that's it? a loaded question coming off the pandemic. <laughs> so uh, we have a quite a bit of building and renovating going on, and that started prior to the pandemic. Um, so we have a $32 million project going on for our student services building. And, and so you might wonder, like, you know, why are we doing that? And it's, it's because as a community college, you know, we were kind of all over the place, you know, like financial aid might be in this building and, you know, admissions might be over here. And we want to give students a sense of place. And we wanted to give them a place where they can just come and hang out if they want, but then they could get everything taken care of in one location. And so, um, and we also wanted it to be inclusive. And so we have spaces for all of our students. Uh, we have counseling there. And so that one's underway and they've actually been able to make good progress because we haven't had a lot of people on campus. Um, we had our ag building, our ag sciences building just got completed um, last, I think late last fall. And we have, in terms of graduates, we have the number one ag program in the country in terms of the number of graduates that we have. And so 
that was a huge uh, undertaking and uh, really one that was really needed. Um, we are also, one thing that we are launching, I'm really excited about uh, because this research went on prior to the pandemic, but then it kind of got put on hold during the pandemic. And that's an aviation mechanic program. Um, there's a shortage of aviation mechanics as well as pilots. And so we did a lot of this research prior to the pandemic, but then, you know, air traffic and all of that kind of halted during the pandemic. And so it just kind of put it on hold. Um, but last spring, uh, we decided that there's an increasing need. And so we um, are going to launch that this fall. So I'm really excited about that. And that will be, so when you ask about unique programs, that would be a very unique sure. program. Absolutely. Yeah. I yeah. don't know very many community colleges doing uh, that type of career path for their students. So great. Good for you guys. Thanks. Um, so here's another loaded question. Can you talk about yourself and the path that led you to become the fifth president and first female president at Kirkwood? Yeah, I can. So it was a long and circuitous route <laughs> to the presidency. Uh, so I started out as an adjunct uh, a lot of years ago, as a lot of people start out at community colleges, even at universities. And, and then I really decided, because I was in another field prior to that, that that was kind of my calling, like the community college was my calling. And I'm a first generation college graduate. Um, and so a job came open. It was the coordinator of institutional research. And that was at Carl Sandburg College. And, and so I applied for it and got the job. So I made a career change. I think I was about 35, 36, made a career change. And um, from there, I went on to get, at that point, I had a bachelor's degree. So I went on to get a master's and doctorate. And then I moved over into HR and organizational development. And so <laughs> what I always say is, uh, give me data any day. <laughs> I love the research because you know, it's pretty black and white. And when you get over to HR, uh, it's every shade of gray. And so, but I enjoyed that. I became the chief negotiator. We were a union um, community college and for the board. And that was um, an assignment that nobody likes to get. And what I can tell you is some of my best uh, experiences and best memories um, at the community college resulted from that because really got to work with faculty and got to work with people in a very different way and was able to build relationships and respect. And um, I wouldn't trade it for anything. And uh, I think I negotiated three contracts over six years. We did negotiate every other year. And so from there, then I became a VP and I was a VP on the administrative side. And um, my heart always was on the academic side. And so when that vice president retired, then I moved over there and I was only there about 18 months before my president announced his retirement. And so um, I was appointed by the board. So I was the sixth president at Carl Sandburg College and the first female and the first alum. That's, that's my college that I had uh, graduated from. And uh, so I had spent my entire uh, life in Galesburg. That's where I'm from. I'd gone to college there. And so then uh, I had a consultant call me as someone I knew and told me about the Kirkwood job. And I'd spent my entire career at, at Carl Sandburg College. And I said, well, you know, I'm never going to leave Carl Sandburg College. That's the college I graduated from. And he said, yeah, I know. 
but I think you should kind of look at this. And so, of course, I did. And the rest is history. Here I am. <laughs> I've been here three years now and is a very good move for me. Um, so Kirkwood is, is large. It's a large institution. But, you know, it's very similar to my very small institution um, over in Illinois. It's the demographics are the same. It's a Midwestern um, community college, multiple locations. And um, it's, it's just very similar. It's just a large operation here. So uh, I feel, feel really blessed that I was able to serve at a small institution and then also now at a large institution. So, yeah, when I look at your bio, you, you held quite a few positions, administrative positions in yeah. Illinois, that's for sure. When, when did you decide or what made you to decide to make the jump out of the academic side into more of an administrative side? Yeah, that's the question, right? Um, that I think everybody has to ask themselves at some point, if you're a faculty member, um, is... And I was never full-time faculty. I was adjunct. But then I also taught for a while at Knox College. And they had lost their business professor. And uh, that's my degree. And so I was helping them out at night, teaching at night. And that was a private liberal arts institution. And they had offered me a full-time position teaching. And so, you know, really had to think about it. And, And so where I landed is that I really feel that in administration, have the opportunity to, to influence, you know, policy at the institution. I have the ability to influence a lot more students than what I do in the classroom. And so uh, I still teach occasionally. I teach occasionally for Fair State University in their doctorate program. But um, academic affairs and academics and teaching is really where my heart is. And so I identify, you know, with faculty and the challenges they face and and also the, the rewards that they receive from, from just teaching. And so that's how I made the decision. And it wasn't an easy one. <laughs> you still kind of sound like a faculty member to me. I would. <laughs> <laughs> I was still in there. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I think, I think I agree with you. I think it really helps with policy where you keep, where you kind of keep the student and the instructor or whatever the professors are doing in line with what you need to do at, at your college, to say the least, instead of just looking at only data, you know, mm-hmm. you know, that, you know, the you know, the feel of what you're trying to do too. So mm-hmm. excellent. Yep. Excellent. So what's been the proudest moments of your presidency so far at Kirkwood? Hmm. So when I got here, we did not have a long range strat plan. We had some, had some loose priorities. And so, as I told you, I started out in institutional research. And so I'm very data informed. And I, I like to make decisions based upon what the data, what the evidence is showing us. And so uh, we have a you know, long-term plan now. We have key performance indicators. Uh, we are monitoring those every year and making corrections where we need to. And, and it's something that I, I'm really proud about because we're talking about student success as an institution and we're watching the numbers. We're watching our persistence and our retention and completion. And um, it's important to us. And then uh, we also have other things like employee engagement, which is hugely important to an institution. We have KPIs there as well as for diversity and inclusion. And so I think it's provided a way for us to get very focused and then to be able to look at outcomes 
and to decide you know, where we need to make mid-course corrections. We've also embraced guided pathways, uh, which is um, uh, a way to think about what you do as an, at an institution that ensures students have a pathway from the time that they arrive. And a lot of times, uh, community college students, they, they arrive to us, you know, different places in their academic journey. And a lot of times they don't have people at home who can help them if they're first generation. And so sometimes they get a little bit lost and, and graduation rates at community colleges are lower than at universities. And, and so anything that you can do to help students get very focused and to help them on that journey is going to be hugely important to them. And so as an institution, we've, in, we've embarked on the guided pathways because we believe that will help us and help our students. Um, and so proud about that. And uh, emergency management. So that's not one of the most glamorous things, that's for sure. Uh, but it is, uh, in today's times, it is hugely important. And we have, we're a large institution. We have 11 sites. Um, about 15,000 students, um, credit students, another 40 to 50,000 non-credit students. And so uh, emergency management is, is, is huge. And so we have embarked upon a five-year plan for that. And we now have a central dispatch here on the main campus, which we didn't have before. And we've provided training now. And so I feel while we're not where we want to be yet, we've made good progress. So those are probably the three areas that I'm probably most proud of. Wow. Well, uh, um, when I look back at the last year, do you have any surprises that actually turned out to be really positive for you guys going through the pandemic and all the things that you've had to change? Was there any, was there anything positive that came out of that? Oh, I think, I think as an institution, I think we came together as an institution. So Kirk was a unique place. Uh, my former institution was like this, but this was small. And so uh, Kirkwood kind of has somehow, I don't know how they've done this, but over the years they've, they've grown, but they've kept that family feel uh, among employees, uh, among the way we, we consider our students. And, and so we really came together as an institution. And, and I think that's huge, uh, when you, particularly when you're a large institution, that you can rally around you know, a common good, which the common good was make sure our students get through and let's support the institution, all right? Um, students were struggling too. And right before fall semester last year, so during the pandemic, uh, Cedar Rapids was hit by a derecho storm. And I had never heard of a derecho prior to last August 10th, but what they are, they are like a hurricane on land and they're not predicted. Uh, and we had 140 mile an hour winds, um, and it caused just complete devastation. It was one week before classes started. Um, so Cedar Rapids lost 65% of its tree canopy in that storm. Um, the institution had about $3 million worth of damage, but what happened for lots of families and our students, they lost, I mean, their, their, their homes were damaged. And so, you know, a lot of times for some community college students who are low income, first generation, you know, going back to college, it's a big deal. And it's a lot to take on for them because a lot of them are working too. And so, you know, you pile on top of pandemic and that makes it feel like it's 
insurmountable. And then you throw in a derecho storm one week before classes start and it really feels insurmountable. And so um, as an institution, we just had a lot of hits last year um, with things that were not related to the pandemic, but then, you know, just exacerbated, you know, all the challenges we had. So I'm really but, proud of us that we got through. Got through. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a good thing to be proud of, that you just made it to the finish line. That's a good thing, yeah. <laughs> we, we stayed open. So we we did more face-to-face classes than most institutions. Really? So mm-hmm. we did 40% was face-to-face last fall. 60% was face-to-face in the spring. So our students, we did surveys with our students that first semester, which would have been when the pandemic first happened that May, as we were completing, we did a survey. We asked our students what they wanted. Do you want face-to-face? Because they'd done some online. They'd done, you know, um, Zoom, Web Live. And they overwhelmingly wanted face-to-face. And so, and we have a lot of career tech programs here. And so those, you know, you can't learn how to be a nurse, you know, remotely. (laughs) And you can't learn how to work on people and their teeth remotely. I mean, and you can't learn how to weld remotely. You have to actually do it. So while we got pretty creative in terms of um, ways to assist with that, we still had to have face-to-face. And so um, we did. And, you know, I'm proud to say we didn't have any transmissions on on campus. Uh, We had very stringent protocols and um, they matched CDC or exceeded them. And and they worked. And so we felt we were proud for that too. <laughs> Good for you guys. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, you know, uh, I was at a two-year school and that was a hard thing to say as a dean going, we, we have to shut down face-to-face and every instructor looks at you like, how do you do that? And of course, you're right. It's really hard on the students when, when they come to, you know, community colleges to your education is all about hands-on education. And so when you don't have the hands-on, it kind of messes everything up. Um, prior to heading to Iowa, uh, as you said, you served as the president of Carl Sandburg College. In fact, mm-hmm. I think you were the president for eight years. Is that correct? I was, yes. Okay. So what's been some of the biggest lessons you have learned as an academic leader in all these administrative positions you've held? And what advice can you give new academic leaders? So the biggest advice I have is to communicate. <laughs> It sounds really simple, but I don't, it doesn't matter what institution I've been at, whether it was a small one or now a large one, communication is always the challenge. And uh, employees just want to know what's going on. Um, they, you know, and then particularly during a pandemic, right? I mean, they really want to know what's going on then. Uh, but what I found is that you can't over communicate. I, I just haven't ever found that to be true. And the biggest thing I think that leaves people feeling unsettled is, is to not know what's going on or to feel like they don't know what's going on. So communication, if I could, I could tell every new president one thing, it's, it's that, right? Just, just really make sure people know um, what's going on, what you're thinking about. Um, particularly with a new president, you know, people get a little anxious about that. They're like, are they going to change everything or, you know, how's it going to be? And so the sooner that you can, you know, reassure people that, you know, you don't plan to, you know, turn things on their head, that you really do want to understand the culture and you really want to be a part of the institution. I think that goes a long way in easing people's anxieties about a new leader. 
So a follow-up question to that is then, how has your leadership style evolved over the years? Uh, so it's changed. Um, and it's because of this communication piece. Uh, I, a lot of people will say, ah, I'm a servant leader. And I think that term is overused a little bit. Uh, what I like to say is I am trying to be as authentic as I can. And I'm trying to be as, as honest and as transparent as I can with all the stakeholders we have, whether it be our students, whether it be our employees or the board or, you know, taxpayers. And um, that that's, there's some folks who like to create like a, I don't know, kind of like a president persona, right? Um, that this is kind of, and that's not what I've done. I've really tried to say, this is who I am. And um, this is where I, I hope that we're going to go. And these are the things, the challenges we're going to have. And and I really try to operate from a place of authenticity. So that's one thing I've learned. And that's not easy early on because it kind of puts you in a kind of a vulnerable position. So it's not as, it's easier said than done. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. That is true. I, I don't think uh, when you move from faculty into administration, you have all these ideas of what you think's right. And then once you get there, you realize I'm driving the ship. This is way different. So, yeah. Yeah, I did write a paper after I became president at uh, Sandberg, um, and it was entitled All the Things I Wish I'd Known Before I Became a College, about being a college president before I became one. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, so what was some of the takeaways from that paper? What would you say? Yeah, so the, the biggest thing, you just hit on it, which is w- what triggered it for me, is that you know I had been acting president for my former institution You know um, when the president would be gone, he'd put me in charge, I'd be acting president. But the day you are the president, you can't explain it. But I, I mean, I literally felt it physically, like this heaviness, right, that I was responsible. And and there was a lot of shootings going on then. um, Mm. And it was really, you know, I, I was afraid, I was afraid for our institution. And, and I really felt the res- that sense of responsibility to our employees and to our students to keep them safe. And at this, and so it's just you then, right? <laughs> when you're acting president, I mean, you got the other president, right, to call and there's like nobody to call. And so it's uh, a, just a, a weightiness that I, I physically felt. And it took me a couple of years uh, of working through that uh, to, to really feel like I was kind of uh, really embracing the role. The other one uh, is for anyone who uh, is promoted within their institution. So they're the internal candidate. So I had lots of colleagues. I've been there my entire career. And, and so after I became president, I would notice when people came to my office, they seemed uncomfortable. And, and so I kept thinking it was the furniture. So I kept move, moving the furniture around, right? And I, I, I got different furniture because I had like some like love seats that the previous president had, had had. And, you know, people don't like to sit together on those. So I got just individual chairs and I just kept moving things around because I couldn't seem to figure it out. And I just kept thinking the feng shui just must be wrong in this office. And so one of my, caught one of she had been a colleague. And then of course she reported to me, she came in and she goes, what is with this furniture moving? <laughs> and I said, well, 
people at the feng shui is just wrong or something. I said, people are all of my people that I've been, you know, really close to, they're all like, they come in, they're nervous. <laughs> She's like, it's got nothing to do with the furniture. It's the fact that you're president now. And I'm like, really? Is that what it is? <laughs> She's like, yeah. So all of those relationships that you have that, you know, are solid and, and they're your colleagues, that power dynamic changes when, you know, you become the president and it, it, it just does. And so um, really to recognize that and, and what I started doing then after that would, I would say, boy, you seem like you're awfully nervous <laughs> and they would just laugh and they're like, oh gosh, I really am. It's like come to the principal's right. office. And I said, well, I'm the same person I was six months ago. They're like, yeah, but now you're the president. So the office holds, you know, uh, voltage, uh, um, mm. you know, and so you just to recognize that. That, that's a good, that's a good point. I know, I know when I moved out of faculty and even became an associate dean, uh, before I became a dean, it was this welcome to the dark side almost. <laughs> it was, it's just like, what the heck, you know, and, and you're right. But I, I like your suggestion because I, it was hard to, how do you break that? I recognize it, but you don't, you don't want to bring it up. And it sounds like you, I did. <laughs> you, you brought it up, which was probably a smart thing to do. I said, are, are you nervous because you're in my office? And I'm the president, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." <laughs> and that's about the only way to diffuse it, right? Because otherwise, right. you just keep dancing around it, right. you know. No, that's a, that's a great point. So here, here's a futuristic question. It's safe to say that before we look for answers, we need to ask the right questions. Therefore, what questions do you think need to be asked regarding the future of higher education, both for two-year education and for your education? Yeah, so I think the most fundamental question that we as a society need to answer is how much do we value higher education? Um, because since the late 1980s, there's been a disinvestment in higher education, both federally and, and statewide. And uh, more of the burden has fallen to the student and the family. And at the same time, you know, we've fallen behind some of the other countries around the world in terms of, you know, degree um, attainment. And so I think it goes back to that very fundamental question. Uh, do we want to be the leader in higher education? And do we want to have a really educated um, society? And if so, um, how can we put money behind that? Um, because it is increasingly falling to students and families. And you see that in the huge amount of debt that students have. But if you go back and look like late 1980s, you can begin to see that gradual decline in funding. And um, here we are now, 2021, and, and you're, we're seeing the effects of that over time. And so I think that's a fundamental question. I really do. And, and if we do believe that, it is fundamental to our society, then how can we put a sustainable model of funding in for it and uh, make it a priority? Well, then from the community college arena, should, should free community college be an option down the road? Yeah. So, so if you ask me, you know, what I think about that, basically, I mean, yes. The problem being is I don't know how you do it. Right. Effectively. How do you pay for, what do you, how do you pay for things? Well, how do you 
pay for it, but there's all kinds of other technical things. So right now, for the most part, a lot of college community colleges are units of local government. And so like within Illinois, for example, tuition is set by each unit of local government, the amount of tuition that's paid. And it, it's dependent upon property taxes they may receive in that area um, and, and then state funding. And so in Iowa, you know, we all have different uh, tuition rates. Same thing, thing in Illinois. It, it, that's pretty, um, pretty standard across the country. And so how do you, how do you, how does the federal government um, approach that? Because they're going to have to give Kirkwood maybe less money than they're going to have to give another Iowa school. And, and so how does that work? And so it's that technical piece of how to do it, how to get the money pushed out in such a way that it really is free. Um, and there are, so there'd be winners and losers. So I think like right now they're talking about maybe like, you know, an average across the country. So the people who are below the average, you know, that's going to work great for them. Uh, institutions below the average, but institutions above the average, which Iowa is above the average as is Illinois. I don't know where the rest of that money comes from then. And so, so the, conceptually, I do like it. I just don't know how to do it. Um, and that's the challenge. Yeah, I think one of the problems with two-year education too is some of the startup costs for two-year education is crazy. You know, yes. I mean, as far as what you have to buy and put up, and so right. that's the other thing. And you don't have hundreds of students sitting in a in a lecture hall. Sometimes you you know we have smaller classrooms, mm -hmm. and so I, I've there was a there was a president I talked to with out in Arizona, and they're kind of trying to move a little bit toward this model. They have a few things going on there right now, and it's the same thing. Is it looks great on paper, but as you said, how, how do you do it? It's like the yeah, devil's yeah. in the details, yeah. you know, and that's the hard part. So conceptually, of course, I believe in it. I think that that's the next step for us. It's just I don't know how to, I don't know how to effectively get that accomplished. And so that's the challenge with it. So how do you see higher ed evolving over the next 10 years to meet the needs of business and industry? I mean, what needs to expand, you know, what needs to be developed? Yeah. So it's going to be interesting. Um, so I, I'm not sure I know, I know the answer to that because I think the pandemic changed things. And so the answer I, probably would have given would have been one that didn't include, you know, so many of our people in our workforce dropping out, um, which I just read an article today about, you know, there's just been, people are leaving their jobs. Um, people, some people are retiring early. And, and so that's an interesting dynamic. It, it's not one we've ever faced before. I don't think um, as a country, I mean, typically, you know, you're, uh, you always want to create jobs um, because that stimulates the economy. And in this particular case, if we do that, um, we don't have enough workers now. <laughs> and so, so I don't know what happens with that. So I think from an educational standpoint, I think for sure we will embrace some kinds of additional online um, virtual classes. I think students got a little bit of a taste of that and, and they understand it a little bit better. So there's less fear around it. But I do think that we will, at least Kirkwood and probably universities will still remain face-to-face -face. because as we all know, I mean, we were all dying to get together with our friends and have dinner, right. And connect. 
And students want to do that. Um, they want to have go to athletic events and they want to hang out with their friends and that they want that college experience. You know, will it be supplemented with more virtual work? Probably. Um, I, I don't know that human connection. You can't get that from Zoom. <laughs> oh, I, boy, do I agree with you on that. That's true. Uh, so my cabinet, we didn't, you know, all during the pandemic, we didn't meet. And, you know, the first time we met, uh, I was in my office and I was listening to them in, in the conference room. And I mean, they were just talking, talking, talking and laughing. And our first cabinet meeting felt so productive. And I'm like, you know, you guys, we got through the pandemic and Zoom worked. I mean, we, it, it worked at a crisis, but it's not a way to, to, to work going forward, you know, as a matter of routine. I said, this connection. And they're like, oh, yeah. I mean, it just, everyone was just so happy to be back together again. And so, you know, Zoom works and there's a place for it for sure. And it got us through a crisis, but I, I just don't think it long-term it's the answer for us. Yeah. I also noticed there's a there's a a two year college right now that I'm watching almost turn back into an old votech. And what I mean by that is, I don't know if this is a trend, but I'm starting to see. Let's just worry about micro credentials and certificates. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, but didn't isn't that where we came from? Which is back in the you know right when when I started out at a two year school, you know it was a votech before it turned in part of a university system. Mm -hmm. And so I was I'm just wondering this. This quick fix on, I mean, can't we do it all? Can't, can't, you know, can't we just add more micro-credentials for our students and not try to oh, yeah. turn back? Absolutely. Yeah, we can offer a lot more of that. Um, that's one thing that probably that Kirkwood could do a better job on is micro-credentialing. Because particularly if we enter a strong economy, which what is what it appears um, will happen, um, People just need additional skills, you know, a few additional skills to move up at their at their their business or their organization. And so they don't necessarily need a two year degree. Right. Um, so that whole micro credentialing piece, and, and sometimes it doesn't even have to be on the credit side. It could be on the non credit side. We are number one in Iowa. I think we're one of the top five in the country in terms of what we do on non credit side. And uh, they do they can do a lot of uh, micro credentialing on that side of the institution as well. So yeah, I think there's definitely a big place for that. You know, if I said today you had some extra budget money, I mean, it's yours. There's no strings attached. How would you spend it? Oh, gosh. Now that's a tough question. <laughs> how would I spend it? Well, I wouldn't spend it on bricks and mortar. That's how I wouldn't spend it. That's for sure. What I would probably spend it on are wraparound services for students. Probably more, another count, another counselor, um, more counselors plural, um, success coaches. Because um, what we know is that students um, to get into college, if they don't qualify for Pell, a scholarship opens the door for them. But what we also know is that an open door doesn't mean that they're going to stay. They're able to stay in college because life happens to them. You know, they lose their job. They lose their daycare. They can't make their apartment rent. Um, their car breaks down, and or they, you know they may have some mental health challenges. Life happens to um, those students, and and so they drop out. Usually not because of academic problems, but they are dropping out because the other challenges. And so the more we can assist with those, 
um, and get students through, I think the better off we're going to be. And that costs money. Um, that's the challenge because it it's people intensive and uh, that gets expensive. And so that's probably where I would put it. So, so here's my last question. And this is to help other academic leaders is, do you have some favorite books on leadership that you would recommend to them? I, of course, do. <laughs> I am um, a Jim Collins fan. And uh, so a lot of people will say <clears throat> that Jim Collins is, is a business researcher, right? And so, you know, this is not business. And so, you know, what I say about that is that um, Jim Collins is a behavioral researcher, human behavior, and a leadership researcher. The reason why he looks at publicly held companies is because that's where the data is. Um, and it's consistent data, so you can, you can, you can um, hold things constant in other areas. So I like his good to great, of course. Um, the one that we just read as a cabinet um, was How the Mighty Fall. Um, and, and so, uh, I just thought it was, it's one of his better books about, you know, not getting too much hubris uh, about being great that, um, even the mighty can fall and, and not do well. So we read that, um, let's see, I like Warren Bennis, uh, now he has passed away now, but he's been, he's kind of considered kind of the godfather of leadership research. And one of his books I really like. And when I teach the leadership course at Ferris, I have the students read this. It's called Geeks and Geezers. And so it, it looks at uh, people 30 and under that are leaders. And then it looks at, at people, typically, typically they're men, um, because they're 70 years old and older. And they look at how their leadership styles are different and, um, and that how they're shaped by the generation that they grew up in and society at that time. And so it's a fascinating read. So I like that one too. <laughs> well, like I was saying, it's more of a selfish request for me because I always have gotten some really good, good book ideas. Got some good, good book tips. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Geeks and geezers. You'll love it. <laughs> I like the name of it already. <laughs> yeah. And there's one person and he, he just passed away not long ago. Um, he was young. He was, he was actually a geek. It was Tony Shea. Um, and he owned Zappos. Um, do you remember, you, you know, mm -hmm. Zappos, right? And then he sold Zappos to Amazon, but he recently passed away and he, he was still very young, but he was a leader that, uh, crossed over those generations. And so, uh, Zappos was a place where they wanted people to come and stay. Uh, it wasn't a transactional kind of of arrangement. Um, they want, they liked loyalty. They liked to build a place where people, employees wanted to stay, which you don't see a whole lot anymore. And, um, so Tony Shea was kind of one of those people that was a geek, but kind of had some geezer, some geezer notions too. So he was a unique leader. So I think you'll, I think you'll like it. I am. Thank you for the tip. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, Lori, thanks so much for being on our show. I really have enjoyed our conversation. I've had a good time too. I appreciate the invitation. I appreciate getting time to talk with you. You make me think uh, that one question about what I would do with money, that that's because I, 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 you know, that never comes up. So I don't ever have any extra, right? <laughs> uh, but thank you. I do appreciate it. 
Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks for listening to today's episode and make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.